This morning I'm going to try and deal uh, with a chapter and a half at the end of First Peter, but you'll notice that we left out some verses in our reading. Uh, there are five verses there at the start of chapter five that have to do with elders. Uh, the reason we left those out is we'll come back to have a look at those in January whenever we think together for a couple of weeks about elders in a church and electing new elders is what we'll be up to in January. So uh, don't worry, those verses will be looked at. They're not being uh, left out. So we're going to try and deal with the rest of this material this morning. And Peter uses a recurring pattern uh, that recurs three times over in the passage. And I thought I'd quickly show you what it is. Um, He makes three related points and he rotates through them. He tells the believers, first of all, that we share Christ's sufferings. Secondly, that we'll share Christ's glory. And thirdly, that in the meantime, we keep following Christ. So I'm going to move quite quickly into all of that uh, because I want us to take some time to reflect on it all at the end. So that first part, we share in Christ's sufferings. If you look with me at verses 12 to 18 of chapter 4, He talks about how we do this. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. He's basically making the point that it's normal for Christians to suffer. Throughout throughout the letter, he's talked about that in a variety of different ways, if you remember. He's talked about how we can suffer under oppressive leadership or authority. He's talked about how we can suffer by enduring unfair insults. And last week we thought about how you can suffer by by people thinking us weird if we don't go along with them uh, in whatever behavior they're up to. Peter's basic point is, it's normal. Get used to it. You follow Jesus, you will suffer. But he doesn't leave it at that. He's not asking for some sort of stoic acceptance of suffering. Look look at what he goes on to say. He says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. He says that whenever we suffer for the sake of Jesus, then there's something here to celebrate. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now that, that just seems really weird. Why would you ever rejoice or celebrate your suffering? You, you've got to stick with Peter and his, the reason that he gives here. It seems to me that he's saying, well, the same people who hate God will hate his people. Those who wish they could insult God to his face but have no opportunity to do that will gladly insult God's son or God's daughter who stands before them. When they do, Peter says we should celebrate. Here's why we celebrate. Because somebody has seen enough of Christ in us to treat us in the same way that they would treat Jesus. The same person who would insult Jesus now insults us. There's enough of the character of Jesus in us for us to be treated in the way that he was. That's pretty good. None of us wants to suffer. 
But that sense of identifying with Jesus, that's something to celebrate. By the way, Peter uses a lovely image here. He says that when we're experiencing insults for Christ's sake, then we can rejoice because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This, this image of the spirit of God resting on, on God's people. It's like it was for, for Israel in the desert. I don't know if you remember, but as they moved through the desert, there was a, a pillar of cloud by day before them and a pillar of fire. And it was a way of showing the people, hey, God is here with us. You might remember the passage that Jesus read when he was in his hometown synagogue recorded for us in Luke chapter 4 from Isaiah 61. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Do you remember what happened when he was baptized and the dove descends from heaven, a visible sign of God's spirit dwelling on him? Well, here Peter says that that's the case for you. This suffering is an indication that God's Spirit dwells on you. Isn't that wonderful? Nobody wants to suffer. But if we're in Christ, to know that His Spirit is on us and that we're drawing the same kind of response that Jesus did, that's great. This all takes a little bit of getting our heads around, I think. It seems to me that we're inclined to, to rate our lives and how well they're going by how comfortable we feel. So if, if we're trying to work out, is God with me? Am I experiencing God's presence? We'll evaluate it something like this. Well, things are going well. Life is good. Therefore, God is with me and I'm knowing his presence. Seems pretty sensible way to think about it. Well, this passage turns that right upside down in its head. Because it, says, it seems to me to be saying, actually, if God's presence is really on me, I might just be attracting quite a bit of trouble to me. It might just be that one indicator that God really is with me is that life's not easy or comfortable or straightforward. I'm experiencing all sorts of trouble. We said a moment ago that Peter uses a recurring pattern to reinforce his teaching. Well, well he revisits this idea of, of how we share Christ's suffering in chapter 5. Look, look with me at verses 8 to 9. He talks there about a particular threat of suffering at the hands of the devil. He says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You're under attack from the devil, Peter tells the believers, and so are other followers of Jesus throughout the world. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder, do you believe that Satan is alive and well and at work in this world? Or is that something that you have either forgotten or you choose to ignore? I hope that you do believe that. 
I hope that you take the, the presence of Satan in the world seriously. And I hope and pray that you take all steps that you can to guard against his activity in your life and in this community. Any follower of Jesus Christ would do the same. Do you know that about Jesus, that he talked quite a bit about the devil? That he warned us a lot about Satan's work in our lives? To not take seriously the devil is to miss part of what was important to Jesus. You see, every time that God works in the world, Satan is ready for a a counterattack. If you think about the history of the church, it was as the church flourished in those early decades and centuries that, that Roman persecution rose up against them. When I was growing up in, in more recent history, I was very conscious of the sense of the communist bloc of countries and regimes being used by God to oppress his people. Still today, there are all sorts of ideologies that stand uh, fundamentally against Jesus Christ and his people. Nowadays, Christians suffer intensely in some Islamic countries. So the, the attack of Satan against his people is, is something we, we absolutely need to recognize and to understand. It's not always physical attack that comes against us. Sometimes it's much more subtle than that. He'll use whatever means he can to, to undermine God's people. Take depression, for example. Some of God's great servants throughout the history of the church, suffered really badly with depression. So Charles Spurgeon was a a fabulous preacher, well used of God in the late 1800s in in the Metropolitan Tabernacle of Church in London. He used to suffer terribly from depression, particularly on on a Monday after he had given himself on a Sunday to preaching God's word. Martin Luther, used greatly by God, He too suffered from depression in a big way. So it might be physical attack. It might be depression. It could be anything, really. But Satan is often attacking God's people. I wonder, do we know that and understand it and take it seriously? That that following Jesus, rather than making our lives easier, reducing any of the troubles of life, it might just serve to bring more trouble to us. One preacher once said this. He said that Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they'd be absurdly happy, that they'd be completely fearless, and that they'd be in constant trouble. Absurdly happy, completely fearless, and constantly in trouble. It seems to me that there's a good deal of truth in that. Folks, everything that we've said here this morning about about suffering or being under the attack of Satan, my sense of this is that we could expect it to escalate the more we try to live for God's glory. If we keep ourselves to ourselves, stay nicely in our church or in our own relationships 
and never take a step out to advance the, the work of the kingdom of God, we're, we're the kind of people Satan can easily ignore. But what if we were to start to reach out? What if we were to try and advance the cause of the kingdom by speaking to a colleague or a neighbor about Jesus Christ? Is it not likely then that we will know the opposition of Satan? Are we watching? Are we praying? So we've said here this morning that we share in Christ's sufferings. Secondly, and much more quickly, notice how Peter says that if we share in his sufferings, we'll share in his glory. There's a pattern to Jesus' life that we've got to understand. Suffering first, glory after. And in this passage, Peter makes that simple connection. He extends the pattern of Jesus' life, suffering and glory, to the life of his disciples. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We'll see it again in chapter 5. Look at 5, verse 10. Even when he's giving a benediction, Peter draws attention to the suffering and then the glory. He says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Suffering first, and then glory. I think I can be a bit slow to to pick things up, but this pattern is only recently beginning to, to click with me, and I'm beginning to get this in my mind. I'm beginning to understand a little bit more the full scope of Christian discipleship. You see, to follow Jesus doesn't mean to simply like his book or to be swept up in some sort of worldwide movement, to be a fan, if you like. To follow Jesus means to enter into a totally different kind of life. The kind of life that he lived. Rather than following the patterns of the culture around us, Jesus becomes our model. Although we have all sorts of bosses and live under all sorts of authority, they're entirely secondary because he is our boss. He We're his apprentices. He's our model and our master. If that's true, then the life that Jesus lived and the experiences that he had are ones that we should start to expect to recognize in our own. The contours of our own life follow the contours of his. If he suffered then we might expect to suffer too. And we ought to be content with that. But, but even more, we ought to rejoice in that. And that's what Peter had been saying. We celebrate and we rejoice because finally we're being treated like Jesus. That's in equal measure, I think, very demanding and very exciting. But here's the point. 
If people treat us the same way that they treated Jesus, then God the Father will treat us in the same way that he treated Jesus. That is, that he lift us up and that he will glorify us and that we will reign with him. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Suffering and then glory. Let me have one last go at trying to uh, help us understand this before we very quickly touch on a third and final point. This, I think, is about the vindication of Jesus Christ and of his people. What do I mean by vindication? Well, I saw vindication in action in quite a, a, a funny way quite recently. I was away camping together with uh, some other families here from Kirkpatrick, and we were doing what we often do in the evening, is we just sat together out in the dark under the stars, and it was one of those beautiful, clear nights, so we were stargazing, and one person was saying, look, there's such and such a constellation, and another person was saying, look, I've just seen a, a shooting star, and as we were trying to identify these things, at one point, my wife Claire said, oh, I don't think that is a star. It could be the toolbox that fell and got lost in space. And we were all like, what? What are you talking about? She's a few spanners short of a toolbox, we thought. And she said, no, no, there's this toolbox that fell in space and it's visible. There's times when you can see it. And we were all wise. You know, we were ridiculing Claire uh, for days for the rest of the trip. We did until we got back in reach of an internet connection. And she googled the story. And she found the story about the 2008 incident where a toolbox was dropped from the International Space Station. And when we read on in the story and discovered that it was visible from Earth and that there was footage on YouTube of some uh, astronomer in uh, Edinburgh who had captured it on video... All of a sudden, we were the stupid ones. And Claire was vindicated. Folks, the truth of history is that Jesus Christ, who was rejected and ridiculed, abused and killed, will one day be vindicated. He will be shown to be who he always said he was, to be the living God and his appointed king. Jesus will be vindicated. But here's the thing. So will his followers. All those people throughout centuries and millennia who have been ridiculed who have been thought foolish, who have been tortured and killed in his name, they too will be vindicated. They will be shown to be right all along. God will stand them up before all others and say, these people were right 
because they saw Jesus Christ for who he is. Those who suffer with him will be glorified. So far this morning, we've seen that we share in Christ's suffering. We share in Christ's glory. Where does that leave us today? How do you live today? Peter answers that question too in our passage. He he says we keep following Jesus. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. After talking about our suffering and our glory, Peter says those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. He offers some sort of similar guidance in chapter 5. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in good time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Do you see the pattern? Those are all somewhat similar things that Peter's talking about. Commit yourselves to your creator. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. One day, all who suffer with Christ will reign with Christ. But in the meantime, we live as Jesus lived. We trust the Father fully. Rather than trying to teach this this morning, I thought we'd spend a few minutes actually trying to do it. Humbling ourselves before God. Casting our anxiety on Him. I thought we'd take some time to close our thinking together in prayer. I've been struck over the last few weeks uh, by how some of the stuff we've seen in First Peter has, has come to life for some of you, has come off the page. I've had one person approach me and ask that we would be praying for them as a family because an employer is acting in ways that seem deeply unfair and they're trying to work out how to follow Jesus and live under his authority in that situation. That's a First Peter issue that we identified earlier in our studies. Last week I shared with you how I had one person explain to me how weird they were made to feel at their office Christmas dinner when they weren't willing to join in the, the incredibly immoral behavior that was going on there and was being normalized there. That's a first Peter issue. That's something we, we looked at in the passage we, we looked at last week. I'm sure there are lots of other ways in which members of the family here that, that I don't know about, members of the family are, are, are suffering or feeling the pressure of trying to, to follow Jesus in, in their workplaces and homes and neighborhoods and peer groups. We're going to pray about that together just now. In, in John chapter 16, Peter says, or Jesus says the most beautiful thing. He says, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I 
have overcome the world.